and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. So I'm excited to bring our guest on today's show of the Path 11 podcast. And over the years, he has developed a reputation of being one of the most exciting and inspiring speakers on the subject of consciousness, extraordinary human experiences, and the mysteries of reality. My guest today is Anthony Peake, and he studied at the University of Warwick and the London School of Economics. He has now written 10 books, and he is at present writing his 11th. His work has been translated into various foreign languages, including French, German, Italian, Italian, Russian, Dutch, Polish, and Spanish, and all of his books have one central theme. What exactly is consciousness, and what is its relationship with the seemingly solid material universe presented to us by our senses? In his work, he discusses neurology, psychology, quantum physics, consciousness studies, and cosmology, and then places in the mix mysticism, occult beliefs, theology, and cultural items such as movies, music, and even poetry. So, Anthony, welcome to the Path 11 podcast. Delighted to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about consciousness. Um, (laughs) You know, it's one of the things that I know that our listeners, uh, that's why they tune into our podcast. So I think that they're going to find this episode pretty exciting. Um, Now, I do know that, you know, you are over in the UK, and I know that you're writing your 11th book, but I don't want to um, assume that our listeners are familiar with your work or have even heard of you before. So I was hoping maybe you can delve into that and talk a little bit about your experience and your studies and, you know, your love for this subject and what you've been doing in the world so people get a better idea of what your background is. Oh, absolutely. Um, okay. I've been interested in matters esoteric ever since I was probably around about 10 or 11 years of age. Um, and indeed, at that time, um, I became very interested in in the occult and UFOs and similar phenomena, as a lot of youngsters are at that time. Um, but I took it a little bit further in the sense that I was more fascinated in what was actually taking place when people saw a ghost or what was taking place when somebody claimed they saw things flying in the sky or they had alien encounters or they had abduction scenarios. Because to me, it was a simplistic idea just to turn around and say, oh, well, you know, it, it's just a, a part of nature. Because to me, these things, as somebody who had always been interested in science and the scientific viewpoint, these were things that ran contrary to what science told us about the nature of reality that effectively everything is made up of atoms, everything is solid, everything is real out there, and what we perceive from the external world is exactly a one-to-one relationship between what's out there and what our brain tells us is out there. So I started reading a great deal around the subject, and I get, became particularly interested in the anthropological aspects of, of mysticism and beliefs in magic and witchcraft and shamanism. And I was fortunate enough uh, to get hold of um, a part series that came out in the UK called Man Myth and Magic, which came out way back in the late 1960s, a million years ago. And these really intrigued me because it gave me a very good understanding of how one can analyze these things sociologically. So when I had the opportunity to go to university a few years later, 
I specifically chose my university subjects based upon these specific interests. So I did uh, courses in sociology and courses in history. And I particularly, in terms of the historical aspects, I focused in on the, um, the peculiar um, sets of beliefs that were around in Europe from the 15th to the 18th century in terms of a lot of these charismatic movements, a lot of the the belief in witchcraft and such like. Um, and then after I graduated with a degree in history and sociology, um, I then did postgraduate London School of Economics. Um, sadly, I was hoping to do a PhD in art history because I was particularly interested in the symbolism of Renaissance art. Some of the, the artists in the Renaissance times, were, were many, many of them were mystics and they were actually painting very, very mystical subjects symbolically within their paintings. Um, but unfortunately, that PhD didn't come to pass because the UK government at the time felt they didn't need art historians, but they did need business people. So I managed to get a, a postgraduate grant to study um, business, uh, human resources management at the London School of Economics. Uh, and after I'd graduated from my postgraduate course, I then embarked on a, um, a career of, um, of, of management within various businesses, um, both national and international. And I now still earn my living because one never earns a great deal from one's writing. I still earn my living as a, a, a management consultant specializing in remuneration policies um, and how people are paid and the structures and the economics of payment systems within businesses, both nationally and internationally. But all through that career, I've always been interested in extraordinary human experiences, not just the idea of magic and such like, but also when people have experiences such as deja vu, when they experience such things as precognition. Um, now, I've had a series of precognitive dreams and precognitive events in my life where I know that I have seen the future and I know that the events that I had dreamt literally came to pass as they had been in my dream two or three days later, literally. Now, to me, this within our modern scientific worldview is absolutely impossible. You know, time is linear, therefore you cannot see the future. Uh, you cannot get outside of your body because you're supposedly your, your consciousness is brain generated and there's no such thing as a consciousness without a brain generating it. But more and more evidence was coming to my, to, into, into my world suggesting that this was not the case. And I was fortunate in uh, at the end of the last century, I, I had done a, a series of contracts, including one in Poland and in Eastern Europe. And I was in the position that I had sufficient finances to take a year out and write a book. And this is literally what I chose to do. I literally decided that I would I would write a book. The problem was I didn't know what I was going to write about. I had no idea what I was going to write about at, at all in any shape or form. But um, my wife was very, very understanding. And she said, if you really want to write a book, do so. Just take a year out and just do it. And I then embarked upon book. And um, a year later, after a lot of hard work, a book emerged. Now, what was cons what was interesting about the book itself was that I never knew where I was going with it. I had no idea. I, I had no plan. I just went where my instinct told me to go. And it started off with um, an analysis of deja vu. What exactly is deja vu? What's happening neurologically with deja vu? It then moved into precognitions. It then moved into near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, and various other areas. But what I also did, which is comparatively unusual for the type of writers 
in my field is that I really delved into the science, the neurology, the quantum physics and everything else. Now, I do the real quantum physics. I'm not one of these wackos who goes out and says, oh, quantum physics suggests this, that and the other and nonsense like quantum healing and this kind of thing. I really do the quantum physics. I, I make it my business to understand even as best I can, even some of the mathematical structures supporting the worldview of, of, of quantum mechanics. I also spend a lot of time in understanding in detail how the brain processes work, how the brain functions neurologically, how neurotransmitters function within the brain, what exactly are neurotransmitters, how do neurons communicate with each other across vast distances across the brain. So these are the areas I focused in on. And at the end of it, I ended up with a concept called cheating the ferryman. Now, the cheating the ferryman concept is an interesting one because it's it's my radical and it is radical and it is it is revolutionary explanation of what's taking place during a near-death experience and indeed this was so intriguing to other people that um, Professor Bruce Grayson who was the, um, the top man in an organization called the International Association of Near-Death Studies um, which is based in the USA. Uh, Grayson himself is, is professor of psychiatry at the University of Virginia, was so intrigued by my work, he asked me to write a peer-reviewed academic paper, which I did, which was peer-reviewed and was published in the international, their journal, uh, the International Association of Near-Death Studies Journal. And it was called Cheating the Ferryman, a New Paradigm of Existence. Subsequently, on the back of this, I then was fortunate enough, after about six or seven months of trying, no, no, it was probably many years of trying, actually, what am I talking about? No, probably it was a good four years later that um, a publisher picked up my work. And in 2006, my first book came out. It was a much watered down version of the cheating the ferryman hypothesis, though, because they wanted to make it um, more accessible to the layperson. So an awful lot of the science was taken out and an awful lot of the supporting material that I'd amassed over the years was taken out to make it slightly more readable to the general public. Now, that book came out under the rather irritating title of Is There Life After Death? The Extraordinary Science of What Happens When We Die? Because in the book, I don't discuss what happens when we die. I discuss what happens just before we die. I also don't go into the area of exactly what what is going on ultimately. To me, I'm more interested in what takes place in the brain when somebody is dying, what neurotransmitters are released, when somebody has a near-death experience, exactly what is taking place, not collecting just so stories from people who've had these experiences, but again, looking into what science supports the idea that somebody senses that they're floating outside of their body, that they sense they're moving towards a bright light. What is the identity of the being of light that somebody experiences at the time? And I was quite delighted by this um, because it made a lot of sense to me. And it's made a lot of sense to a lot of people around the world. This first book has now sold around about 80,000 copies worldwide and has been translated into, I think, at last count, I think, nine different languages. Um, so clearly, and it is still selling. I mean, it is still my best selling book all these years later. And I think it's because it resonates with so many people. Um, people read it and go, wow, yeah, this makes sense to me. And I now have literally thousands, tens of thousands of followers around the world who um, 
develop my ideas and take them forward into different directions and apply them to their own lives. So that's a little bit about the background of the first story. Since then, I've written a series of subsequent books that define in greater detail the elements of cheating the ferryman. Um, and I've moved on from there now. I'm, I'm fascinated by the duality of consciousness. I have something called the daemon and the Adelon dyad. I'm fascinated by uh, the pineal gland and the role of the pineal gland in facilitating altered states of consciousness. I'm interested in dimethyltryptamine uh, as a substance and theogenic substances that seem to take us into altered states of consciousness. And now moving into and have been for many years now the idea that the universe we exist within is a simulation and that we're existing in some form of simulated universe and that effectively at the base level everything is not physical matter at all but it's consciousness or more specifically information and that everything we perceive around us is not what it seems and this is why i mentioned in the spiel that you spent earlier on about consciousness studies how the brain processes information to create an internal world within our minds that we think is a one-to-one -one um, analysis of the external environment. And on the way, I discuss out-of-body experiences and very other, many other unusual states of consciousness. Great. So maybe we can move into a little bit more of, um, you know, the theory that we are in a simulation and, um, and kind of speak about that. I know that you asked me um, before the interview to look up some lyrics of a song by Sean Colvin called Round of Blues. Um, and you kind of teased me a little bit, so I'm not exactly sure where you wanted to go with that. But um, And you also mentioned, um, you know, one of the shows, too, that you wanted to talk about, um, Bandersnatch, I believe it is. And and I, have, I do have some questions about, you know, reality, us creating our own reality. Are we in this virtual reality? Um, you know, our thoughts and what we're thinking is that ultimately creating the reality around us right now. Um, so I'd like to play with all of those different concepts, but uh, definitely going into this, into the theory that we are in an assimilation. Okay. Okay. Well, I suppose I'd better start with um, a little bit of the background to why I discussed the round of blues. And in fact, how that not only gives us an idea that this may be a simulation, I'm sure, I'm sure Sean Colvin, the writer of the song, has no idea of this. Uh, funnily enough, her close friend, uh, Suzanne Vega, who is an American singer-songwriter, did pick up on one of my tweets a year or so ago uh, regarding this, which was quite interesting. But um, Sean has yet to respond. But if she ever finds out fully the implications here, she might be very interested. But effectively, um, in Cheating the Ferryman, I suggest that we are all living our lives again. If we have a deja vu sensation, that is literally what it feels like. A deja vu sensation is the fact that you have a recognition of a set of circumstances you are now experiencing that you've experienced before at an undefined time in your past. That's a very precise definition, which is the definition of Professor Vernon Nepe of the Pacific uh, Institute, who's a psychiatrist up in um, in Vancouver, or Seattle, I should say. And... I argue that the only real logical conclusion we can come from 
if we can see our own future, is that we've already experienced it in some way. And I argue that there is very strong evidence from the reports of individuals who have had near-death experiences, where regularly people, particularly when they know they're about to die, when they're in circumstances where death is facing them, they're either mountain climbers who are falling or people who just know that death is approaching rather than sudden death. People regularly report the idea that my life flashed before my eyes. It's a standard thing. It's one of, one of the things known as the Grayson traits or the Moody traits, which effectively is used by um, physicians to decide on whether somebody has had a valid near-death experience or not. Now, there is no real logical explanation for this neurologically as to why we suddenly see a series of snapshots of our past life. It, it doesn't make any rational sense. It doesn't seem to achieve anything in any, any shape or form, either evolutionary or whatever. So there must be something other than this going on. Now, I argue that in a real death experience, your life doesn't flash before your eyes. You literally live your life again in a literal minute-by-minute -minute recreation of your life. And on occasions, you will realize something inside of you will recognize the set of circumstances you're in, and that's a deja vu sensation, or more technically, a deja vu sensation already lived. Uh, deja vu is already already seen. It's not already in that way. It is, it is very much already lived. Now, I had very strong evidence of this in my own life because I regularly get deja vu sensations. And in fact, people from around the world have contacted me with their precognitive deja vu sensations. I haven't got time here to go into the, the, the standard theories of deja vu uh, from the Robert Efron thesis from 1962 called the Visual Pathways Hypothesis. But there are somewhere in the region of 300 different explanations for deja vu, none of which actually explain it in any shape or form. They're all just hypotheses. They're all just ideas that people have. But if the idea is that we are living our lives again, and it's a recognition circumstance, that's quite different. That is explaining it. Now, for me, where is the evidence for this? Okay. If this reality is a simulation, and it's a simulation similar to a third-person computer game, whereby you are living within a simulation of your own life, it suddenly starts to make sense. People out there who have played third-person computer games, particularly role-playing games, particularly games where you your on-screen sprite lives a whole life or has a series of adventures. I'm old enough to use as the example Lara Croft in Tomb Raider. <laughs> when you first start the Tomb Raider game, Lara Croft is on the screen and you don't know where she is what her background is or anything, and neither if she was sentient, the on-screen sprite, she wouldn't know either. So you're both being born together. Lara goes down a corridor. You move Lara down a corridor. She goes into a room. She gets eaten by a big monster. She dies. You don't. You're the game player. Lara Croft is us in the game. I call that person the Edelon. The game player who remembers all your lives is called the Daemon. Now, when Lara Croft is reborn again, she doesn't remember what happened last time around, but you do as the game player. So you don't go, she, you make sure she doesn't go into the room where she was killed last time. And I think this is what happens in life. I think that we have our own higher self, our guardian angel, whatever we want to call it, this voice in your head that God tells you not to do things. And it makes sure that Lara doesn't go into that room and walks down a bit further and gets killed again. 
But over a period of playing the game many, many times, you complete the game. And I argue this is what is happening in our lives. We exist in something called a Bohmian IMAX, I call it, in deference to uh, an Anglo-American physicist by the name of David Bohm. And I suggest that if you use the computer simulation argument and you use the computer game argument, it makes sense. For imagine, imagine, for instance, with virtual reality now, imagine that you could, there is already with virtual reality, we have virtual reality headsets like the Oculus Rift and various other ones. We also now have tactical feedback gloves that you can use whereby when you move your hands in this reality, your on-screen, on-computer, in-game hands move in exactly the same way. Now, imagine a scenario that you were able to wear a bodysuit that mimicked your movements on screen. But not only that, imagine that it was a three-dimensional virtual reality where you're actually in the game and can look all the way around. Then your memories are wiped clean of who you are, so you don't know who you are. And then the actual game you're playing is the game of your own life, and you're living it again. The question would be, how would you know? How could you tell? And the answer is, no, you couldn't. There'd be no way of telling. You could not, you would not know, because all your, all your visual stimuli, all your hearing and your sensory feedback would be telling you that you are existing within this three-dimensional reality. Okay, so that's a little bit about the background. And I argue that we live our lives over and over again. And we change them all the time, just like you change a computer game and how the storyline of the computer game changes. So it is with you and I and every single living human being who has deja vu sensations. If you don't have deja vu sensations, you're living your first life, living what we call the virgin life, the first one. Now, all this information is already encoded in something called the zero point field. It's an informational field that exists everywhere. Um, it's what the ancients used to call the Akashic record of the Akashic field. But modern science is discovering there's this huge, vast energy field called zero point energy. Um, and again, I haven't got time to go into the science of this, but I'm quite happy to if people want to challenge me on it. And in fact, I love being challenged on it. So imagine a scenario now that I'm living my life again. Now, this happened to me. So this is gospel truth. And it's very, very curious. Way back in 1988, I went into a record shop and I bought a new CD. And with the CD came a free second CD, which was a sampler CD for a number of new albums that were coming out. And there was a sample track from each of the albums. I get home and a few days later, I play the sampler track tracks. And about the fourth or fifth track on, is a track called Round of Blues by an American singer-songwriter called Sean Colvin. The album is called Fat City, and the track is Round of Blues. As soon as I heard the opening few bars of that song, a shiver went down my spine, and I knew it was of significance to me. It's a happy song, and if you get the opportunity to listen to it, you'll see what I mean. I called my 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 then wife into the in in and I said I said to her, Jenny, can we go in this Saturday into our solicitors? I want to change my will. I want this song played at my funeral. And she looked at me as if I was absolutely barking mad. She just looked at me and I was crazy. And I said, No, there's something about this song. I need it played at my funeral. Now, when sadly myself and, and Jenny split up, I started a new relationship with my, my, my present wife, 
Penny. And when Penny and I first got together, one of the first things I said to her was, when I die at my funeral, I want this song played. And I played it to her to make sure she didn't forget. Now, roll forward around about six, no, probably 10 years. I'm a great music fan. I have thousands and thousands of MP3s. I've got albums, I've got tapes, I've got CDs, I've got vinyl going back to the mid-1960s. I have literally, at what, that stage about um, when this incident took place, I had around about 16,000 different individual tracks. And I had them on something called an Arcos player, which was a hard drive. And what I would do is I'd play it in the car and I'd always play it random play. And at that time, I was responsible. I was the HR manager for Nuffield Hospitals in the north of England. And I was responsible for the, the human resources management for around about 12 or 15 hospitals across the north of England. So I was traveling a lot. I'd have this on, the, on, on continual play. One November evening, I'm driving across the Pennines in the UK, in the north of England, quite a high area for the UK. And the weather conditions there are sometimes can be problematical in the winter. And I'm coming down to a place called Milne Row. And anybody listening in the UK will know exactly where I mean here. It's as you come into Lancashire from Yorkshire. And I'm coming down and then it's a, it's a dark evening. It's got heavy rain and the weather conditions are not good. Suddenly, Round of Blues comes on. Mm. First time, one in 16,000 chance. Now, because I'd already written the first version of Cheating the Ferryman, I was aware that this meant something, that this was my daemon or the world telling me something. So what I did was I swerved the car. I was in the middle lane and I swerved my car into the slow lane. As I did so, in front of me had been... Um, a truck with a load of crash barriers on it. The crash barriers came off the truck and crashed into the road. They would have hit my car. I was doing about 60 miles an hour. I would have been killed instantly. There is no way I would have survived that. The last thing I would have heard in my last life was round of blues. I then died. I'm then reliving my life again, and I get to 1988, and I hear the song for the first time. And I remember something significant about that. Now, what gets even odder is the lyrics of Round of Blues. I'll just read them. Just listen to this. Here we go again. Another round of blues. Several miles ago, I set down my angel's shoes on a lost highway for a better view. Now, in my mind's eye, all roads lead to you. She then says, we had our bitter cheer and sweet sorrow. We lost a lot today, but we'll get it back tomorrow. And get this, I hear the sound of wheels. I know the rainbow's end. I see the lights of Fat City. I feel love again. So the argument here is that the song's lyrics are talking about round of blues, going round, going round again. But there's the, the sound of wheels, the road I was driving along. You know, it, it sends shivers up my spine. Now, the reason this links to the Black Mirror series that's just come out, Bandersnatch, is if anybody watches Bandersnatch, you will know exactly what I'm talking about here. The central character of Bandersnatch is in some form of simulation that has been created possibly by his own future self. 
And the future self is communicating with the self in the past, which is my Damon Adelon idea. But there are many other things within Bandersnatch. And for me personally, it is incredibly weird because in Bandersnatch, the central character is called Butler. I have a cousin called Butler who is an IT guy and writes computer, uh, writes computer programs, which is the first coincidence. But the weirdest coincidence was that throughout my writing career, there are a handful of albums I listen to continually when I'm writing. One of them that I've listened to since 1973, stroke 74, is a, an album called Phaedra by a fairly obscure German rock band called um, Tangerine Dream. Nobody knows that I listen to this. I've never talked about it on any of my websites, any of my interviews or anything else. One of the central albums on this, on Bandersnatch, is Phaedra. He's actually given a choice of whether to choose a particular album while he's writing the program of his new computer game. He could have picked thousands of albums. He picked that one. He picked that one, and it's a fairly obscure one. And the, the TV series is based in 1984. That album came out in 1974. That kind of music wasn't that popular in 1984 in the UK. In fact, it was never profoundly popular ever because it was German kind of ambient music, which only a, a small minority of, of English people interested in music were interested in, and I was one of them. So there you have kind of evidence, for me anyway, that there's something far more peculiar going on now within within this simulation or whatever we want to call it. So, yeah, that is peculiar. Now, there's evidence. It's evidence there for you. So what what does that mean? Like, how are you then connected to the Black Mirror, uh, you know, series here of Bandersnatch? Because that, I mean, you hear that and it's like, wow, that's a little crazy. Uh, um, so... Okay. How do you make sense of... Okay, the, there is, in quantum physics, there is something called a collapse of the wave function. Now, without going into super technical terms here, what is being discovered is that subatomic particles, but before they are measured, before they are measured by a measuring device, and a measuring device can be anything, but generally a lot of scientists believe ultimately it is, it is human consciousness and somebody being consciously aware of something. Um, they do not exist in any general term. They exist as a statistical chance, a statistical wave that they may appear in one place or another. Okay, When they are measured, they are forced into a point particle. Now, if human consciousness is responsible for collapsing the wave function of the environment around it, it's almost like a computer um, analyzing the code in order to create images and pictures. Like for instance, when you play a computer game off a CD-ROM, your computer is processing the digital information on the CD-ROM and creating an on-screen version of the world. But, the, on but the, the actual information that it's based upon is actually made up of literally uh, digital, digital coding uh, uh, processed by a, by a um, a laser reading the, the disk. Now, there is strong evidence to conclude that this is how the universe functions. Uh, and again, if people doubt me on this, feel free to doubt me, but the science is the science. 
Um, there's been work done. There's um, a guy called uh, Walman Dakana, and there's also a guy called Craig Hogan at the Perimeter Institute in Canada. And these guys are looking at evidence for the pixelation of space, that space and time are made up of pixels like a, like a computer screen. And they're actually using something called the GO8000 uh, gravity uh, detector device in southern Germany to actually find the pixelation of space. They believe that we exist in a hologram. They believe that what we think is three-dimensional reality is in fact a two-dimensional hologram that our brain processes as a three-dimensional reality with depth. Not only that, but they do the science of this, uh, and this is going to get this will get so technical. I'm not going to go there, but effectively, it is to do with the fact that the universe, since it's expanded from the Big Bang. 13.7 billion years ago or whatever, the universe has been expanding outwards like a, a massive inflating balloon. Now, it's not expanding into anything because there isn't anything outside of the inflating balloon, which, of course, is, is really weird to understand. But imagine that we are in the middle of that balloon. Now, the, the, the space expands outwards like a huge balloon. So we're on the inside of a huge sphere. And they argue that the inside of the sphere, as it's expanding, is peppered with tiny Planck squares. Now, the Planck length is the smallest length you can possibly have. And they believe that these little Planck lengths are actually sending in single, single photons of information. And the information comes inwards from the edge of the universe and creates a huge hologram, which is the universe. Now, if this was the case, this could explain a lot. It could explain, for instance, the mysteries of dark matter and dark energy. Why is it that, and get this, if people aren't aware of this, this is statistically what it is, that, 90, that we, 94% of the universe is missing. There's 90, so only 6% of the actual universe is what we consider to be reality and solid matter. The rest of it, we don't know what it is. But the solid matter that we all think is so solid, the table you're, you're, you're next to or the chair you are sitting on, is 0 0.9999999999 empty space. There's nothing there. And what is there is made up of quarks. Okay? You know, people will pick me up. It is quark, not quark, by the way. Murray Gell-Mann was the guy that invented the term, and he calls them quarks. Quarks, there are six of them. They make up virtually all solid matter. The only other thing we have are the bosons, which actually carry the electromagnetic energy. These are the things that make up reality, and they are point particles. They are ridiculously tiny, and they're not in contact with each other. They are in vast distances apart. The only reason you do not fall through your chair that you're sitting on at the moment is something called electrostatic repulsion. It is because your body is positively charged and, and the, the chair ultimately is, is uh, positively charged as well. So, you know, like and like repulse. If you didn't have that electro electrostatic charge, you would fall through the chair. You would fall through a wall because it's mostly empty space. So suddenly the reality we think is such a reality is not that real anymore. So then the question comes, well, what's with Bandersnatch and me? Well, there could be an argument to say we're all creating our own universes as we go along from the narrative of our lives. So the things we see within reality will reinforce the things we've experienced. Now, this does not mean that other minds don't exist. 
It's just that we are all observers of our own, we're own collapsing our own wave function. And when we interface with other people, our wave functions intermingle or the wave functions intermingle. So we have what's called consensual space, consensual reality. But there's a deeper line to this, because I argue at a deeper level of reality, we are all one singular consciousness experiencing itself subjectively. The only thing that actually exists is consciousness. Everything that is physical, that is material within the universe, is created from a consciousness field. Everything is consciousness. So therefore, we are all consciousness. The universe is a conscious universe. And indeed, I have argued, and I'm not alone in this, that it seems that evolutionary itself, evolution itself and the way in which humanity has evolved consciousness suggests that the universe itself is trying to become conscious through sentient beings such as ourselves. But there is a could, there could be another possibility of the link to Bandersnatch is that I did a series. I've done a two or three TV programs over the years. And um, this was on UK television. And one of the reviewers of this TV program that I was on, uh, that I was interviewed on, um, was Charlie Brooker. And Charlie Brooker is the guy that wrote Bandersnatch. So it is highly likely that Charlie, Charlie Brooker is aware of my work. In fact, my Facebook site has gone absolutely ballistic over the last week or two over this very fact. Uh, and the, the, the coincidences are just too great. I don't believe that. I believe that probably we're all, this is part of the zeitgeist. These are the things that, as we as we get to understand how computers work, how we get to understand how virtual reality works, we're all thinking this now. Ever since the Matrix, there's been this kind of idea that is is there something more? Because it makes no sense. Why is there something rather than nothing? You know, why am I conscious? Why why has consciousness evolved? It doesn't need to. You don't need to be self-aware conscious in order to be an effective mechanism or, or um, meat machine. You don't need to. You don't need it. You know, amoeba don't need consciousness, yet they survive extremely well. Paramecium. And indeed, what is even stranger, we don't need brains because paramecium are single cellular creatures, as are amoeba. And yet they can learn. How can something that is only, got, is, is only one cell learn anything? There's much more deeper questions. And this is because consciousness is a field and we are like radio receivers receiving from the consciousness field and downloading it from the zero point field. Now, let me ask you a question, too, about the writer of uh, Bandersnatch. And is, do you really think it's a coincidence or is it just possible that, you know, he he was familiar with you? He's interviewed you before. And what if he just, you know, tapped into your own data stream? Right. So even though you've never shared uh, those albums that you listen to, it's still a part of your consciousness, which is data, which is information that people can get if you know, because it's out there. It's like, if if you are that computer, that is downloadable. So is it possible um, for the writer of this series to have just maybe even tapped into your data stream, not even realizing it was yours, but there is that connection with you guys being connected before. And then that information, he begins to pull into the writing of the series. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think that uh, he hasn't interviewed me. He, he he possibly would have seen me being interviewed. He didn't actually interview me. He was a reviewer of that TV series. Oh, okay. To, to me, these these ideas are in the German term Weltgeist, world spirit. They are things that we're all attuning into at the same time. We all exist within the same social constructs. We all exist within, we all are influenced by the same things around us. So it is not at all surprising 
that many of us are starting to focus in on the idea of exactly what new technology is telling us about the human condition. You know, there's bigger discussions at the moment on something called post-humanism, the idea that at some stage in the evolutionary stage in the future, we're going to meld with machines and that we are going to become machines in some way. Huge problem there of artificial intelligence and whether artificial intelligence can ever become conscious, which is another th- will be a theme of my new book. But, but for the present moment in time, um, it does suggest that Many of us are aware of this, and there's many. I've many fellow writers are going down this route as well. I'm not unique in this; far from it. There are many other writers that you know I can send you links to for their work because I'm not alone. Um, and if we are one singular consciousness experiencing itself subjectively, as Bill Hicks so pertinently put it many years ago, it's not at all surprising that we we will we will share these things. You know, I'm. I, you know, a lot of people are turning around to me and saying that I should do something about this because it's absolutely outrageous. I've watched Bandersnatch. It is a fantastic piece of writing. It's a fantastic piece of po- postmodernist television that plays with your sense of everything. It really does. It's got multiple endings, and you can choose which ending because that's the argument, as I say in Cheating the Ferryman, that effectively. All your futures, all your potential futures are already encoded out there. You just choose one of the many paths that you can follow in order to fulfill this life. Next time, you might take a completely different path. And this is exactly what the central thesis of the the, the movie is. You know, suddenly he chooses certain routes. Certain individuals commit suicide. In fact, many people have said, you know, that the closest thing to a lot of my ideas is, in fact, um, Groundhog Day, the movie. You know, which, um, in fact, on my own podcast, I've interviewed Danny Rubin, the guy who wrote it, you know, and and Danny and I both agree, you know, that there's a a deeper meaning to this. You know, it's something we just feel is right. You know, it's something that just makes sense. And it also means that we're all immortal. It also means that this isn't, you know, the idea that we all live our lives and we make mistakes, we make errors, we hurt people. We don't know the outcomes of initially of our actions. But when you die... And as you approach death, you do know the outcome of all the actions you did. So next time round, you can avoid going down that path and hurting those people and maybe avoid giving the pain. You know, so to me, I find it a very um, enlightening and makes me feel freer in some way, because I know that maybe next time round I can put make good the things I did wrong last time. So to me, that that tells me that we even if if we are living our lives over and over again, there still is some sort of intuitive remembering, even though we don't fully remember, that could possibly help us in our free will choices. That's the daemon. That's where I for the daemon hypothesis. And the other one I was earlier on talking about the game player, mm-hmm. the person that guides you through your life, your guardian angel. In my book, my second book, The Daemon, A Guide to Your Extraordinary Secret Self, I go into great detail about the neurological evidence that we are that we have dual consciousness from um, from split brain operations to um, deep levels of hypnotism to people who who hear voices to people who sense another presence. we're all slightly aware. We, you have no way of knowing whether you're looking out of your own eyes and somebody else is looking out through your eyes as well. You wouldn't know. And indeed, it is only when people have brain damage or when people have 
the corpus callosum cut, which is the um, the body that holds together the two hemispheres of the brain, that you suddenly realize that you are not a singular consciousness, but you are a dual consciousness. Um, we also have evidence of um, multiple personality syndrome, now called disassociative identity disorder, where we have people who are the multiple people living in somebody's head. But again, all these cases tend to reduce down to just two. So you have this kind of guide. But remember, the interesting thing is the guide, your daemon, only knows your life to the last point you died. Just like you, it doesn't know what happened next. Just like you don't know when you're playing a third person computer game, what happens after the last time you played the game and your on-screen sprite was killed. So there is a point where you cannot, it cannot help you. It will try and guide you, but it can't help you precognitively. Now, again, one of the evidence for this, and it's a profound evidence, is that it is known that deja vu drops off the older you get. The older you become, the less likely it is that you will have deja vu sensations. And I argue this is because you've got further into the game. And the further into the game you got, the chances of you not having got that far in a previous life gets greater and greater. So therefore, the incidence of deja vus become less. But uncannily, deja vus start again at the end of life. Elderly people start getting deja vus. In fact, there is now a syndrome that has been identified called permanent deja vu syndrome, which people who have Alzheimer's have, whereby they think they're living their life continually. And I think this is because, and in my book, Opening the Doors of Perception, which is my last book, I do the science of that. I do the neurology and I do the neurochemistry of what is taking place in the, the brains of people who have Alzheimer's. And it is to do with the destruction of something called the uh, microtubular network by something called amyloid plaques. And I believe what is taking place there is the person who has, is, is, has Alzheimer's or dementia, their doors of perception are being opened wider by the destruction of their normal neurological pathways. And they start to function seeing a different kind of universe, a different kind of world. This is why children, young children, have um, mythical friends. It's why young children see goblins and monsters under the bed. It's because their brain hasn't developed sufficiently. The, the, the actual brain itself, the neurons of the brain, is not myelinated, which means effectively that the brain cell, the signals themselves are not insulated, which allows the child to attune into a much broader world of perception. And this happens again with the elderly. When the elderly start to get old and when, they, when their brains start to malfunction, the doors of perception start to open again. But I also argue that there are people in ordinary life whose doors of perception are always ajar, if not open. And I argue that people have classical migraine. I argue people that have experienced temporal lobe epilepsy, uh, people who have um, autism, and also people when the doors are thrown wide open, it's something people call schizophrenia. And again, my case is made in my book, Opening the Doors of Perception, and I argue it's a very powerful case. And I'm just hoping one day somebody who's involved in looking at this work will pick up this book and say, you know, he was he was pretty spot on in terms of his analysis. 
Yeah. And, and that's a part that I find fascinating is probably a whole nother show between you and I, um, because, you know, my training is in um, mental health therapy. I'm a mental health therapist. And it wasn't until I really started studying more about what consciousness is that I began to look at the diagnosis of schizophrenia totally different. And I, you know, began to really wonder, are these people just, uh, you know, accessing a number of different realities at one time, you know, and, you know, some some of the, the cases that I've seen, it, it was hard to look at schizophrenia in the same way once you start to have a greater understanding of consciousness and other realities. And um, it, to me, that's that's just a fascinating topic to talk about. Mm, indeed, indeed. Well, Anthony, thank you so much. One of the things that I really loved about this interview is you provided not only myself, but our listeners so many um you know, wonderful golden eggs in this podcast. I think if people were to go back and listen to this a couple of times, or, you know, I would really suggest taking notes because you referenced a lot of the science stuff, um, giving us the opportunity to go in and research for ourselves some of the things that you have found. So I know that there is so much to go into in this topic, but I appreciate you um, giving us those references so we can then follow up with uh, more of the conversation that you provided with us. Uh, provided us today. No, thank you very much, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to um, to expound my ideas to your listeners. It's it's always important. I want to get it out there as much as I possibly can. And to me, extraordinary claims need extraordinary proofs, and this is what I try to supply. You know, uh, Marcello Trui made that statement many years ago, and I try to live by it. You know, if I make claims, I have to support them, and I have to support them because there are an awful lot of people out there who will attack you and will try to take your credibility away from you. So you have to make sure you know what you're talking about. Exactly. Yes. And for more information on Anthony, you can visit his website, anthonypeak.com. Uh, the last name is spelled P-E-A-K-E. And um, I'm definitely going to check out your Facebook page to see how that has exploded. And uh, probably tonight, I'm going to go and check out that series and watch it myself. But, um, you know, you have a lot of information on here. And if people would like, you know, to purchase your books and uh, check out your newsletter, and you have wonderful videos on your YouTube channel, that's the place to go to. So it's anthonypeak.com. And uh, thank you again so much for your time and being a guest on the PAP11 podcast. Yeah, thank you again. Thanks for listening to the PAP11 podcast today. I hope you all enjoyed this show. And if you haven't checked out our Patreon page, I'd like you to do so because we are going to start putting some content over there that is only for our Patreon subscribers. You can get content for as little as donating a dollar a month, and it could just be a one-time donation. We have other freebies over there that you can get depending upon how much you would like to donate. And again, it could be a one-time donation, or you can continue to keep your subscription on a monthly basis at that donation level, but I just put my MBT immersive experience, which was a four-day four day intensive meditation training in Tennessee with physicist Tom Campbell. I was listening to binaural beats, going to altered states of consciousness, having out-of-body experiences and life-changing experiences that I was able to bring back uh, for myself, for my clients, for my friends. That was just out of this world. So if you would like to listen to that, 
I'd like you to head on over to path11podcast.com. You're going to see an orange button that says Patreon. Become a Patreon today and you can have access to that podcast. And I would like to remind you to head on over to path11productions.com and check out the membership that we have for the Afterlife Awareness Conference. We have over 25 hours of footage with amazing speakers like William Buhlman, Thomas John, Terry Daniel, Suzanne Geisman, Suzanne Northrup, Linda Fitch, uh, Austin Wells, just a few people uh, to name off that were amazing. These workshops are just so valuable. So I think that you would really enjoy it. It's also a great thing to think about to maybe give the gift to somebody who is struggling with grief. If you are looking for resources, this is a great conference to send people to to check out. And thanks again for listening today. Thank you.